it's, uh, it's important for me to kind of come back from Guatemala um, and get up in front as quickly as I can. Um, while, while the message of God, what I saw down there and what he spoke to me down there is kind of still fresh in my heart before the bubble of living in Morris County, New Jersey kind of comes over me and dulls me a little bit. And so this morning, as I get started, I want to start with a picture. I, I served on a team this week. We were building a house for a single mom and her kind of tween age son. It, it sat in a very rural area off of a dirt path. We were working on it one day, and a little boy from somewhere else, I'm not sure where, he wound up um, amongst us. There he is. Um, we all kind of noticed him all of a sudden. He was about the age of my own granddaughter, Landry. You see her around the church. But other than being about one years old or so um, and being a little shaky on their feet, that's where the, um, the similarities of their situation rapidly diverge. This little boy, as you could see, had no shoes on while he walked around in, in the dirt and all of the, the garbage that was on the ground that could have hurt him so easily. And then the team and I watched as he turned around and he found a trough that was filled with water that I would never, ever, ever, in a million years ever, let Landry touch, let alone play around in. It was the water that we were using for the construction project. Water that if you got your hands on it and then ingested it, it would immediately make you very, very sick. Some of you, um, Reed Finley's here, if you'd like to know what that felt like, he can explain it to you. Um, I got the joy of being his roommate also. <laughs> I would never let Landry go near that water. He turned around and played with it. And it, it gave me a flashback to 18 years ago, the first time I walked on those streets where I saw a little girl about his age who was walking down the street, she cut her shoeless foot open on, on similar garbage. She was bleeding and she found a puddle that was on the, on the dirt path. It was filled with milky white substance that had leaked out from underneath the wall of the city garbage dump. And she sat down and put her foot in it to wash out her wound. Now, had that little girl or this little boy been my Landry, I would have dove across the street to help them and keep them from it. In this kind of poverty, this is their everyday life. This is like the normal. And it was interesting for me as I turned the corner and saw the little boy playing in the water. I watched many on our team take out their phones to capture the pictures of this little boy in the water. Their hearts and their minds kind of stunned by the image, taken back a little a bit. And as I watched them pull their phones out, mine stayed in my pocket and I wondered for a moment if my heart has become hard to some of it. So I, I stood there and I asked God to let it shock me and bother me and offend me anew. Poverty is not a modern problem. It's an ancient one. And yet, yet, it's still so common. It's still so modern. Here's the truth, right? Most children who have ever lived, most children that are living this morning, they don't live the life of Landry. They live the life of the little girl I described or the little boy whose picture you just saw. In regards to heart, uh, God's heart for the poor, Tony Campolo, a once pretty famous preacher and a longtime sociologist at Eastern University, he, he, uh, he once shockingly opened a sermon as a guest speaker at a church this way. And because we have some kids in the room, I'm going to clean it up a bit. I'm not going to say it the way Tony said it, but you'll, you'll get the gist. He said, I have three things I'd like to say to you today. First, he said, while you were sleeping last night, 
30,000 kids died of starvation of diseases related to malnutrition. Second, most of you don't give a, and he said the word. And then he said, third, you know how I know you don't? Because you're more upset with the fact that I just said than that 30,000 kids died last night. I'm not sure that he was ever invited back. But I will tell you, as a follower of Jesus who heard him say that, no sermon has ever impacted me, no truth has ever shaken me more than that sermon. Because it was true of me. We're in, a, we're in this series. We're looking at um, ancient, ancient solutions to, to modern problems. These solutions put forth in these ancient books of wisdom that are contained in the Bible. Over the summer, we're predominantly looking at the words of Solomon that are found in the book of Proverbs. These solutions and truths, they were prescribed. <laughs> they were prescribed some 3,000 years ago by the man that the scriptures hold to be the wisest man that's ever lived. And as you might imagine, Solomon had lots of prescriptions related to the injustice of what I'm speaking. In fact, if you were to just sit down and read Proverbs, just open it and read it from beginning to end, you would notice that the Proverbs actually speak a lot about money and the rich and the poor, about money's ability to both bless and curse. Some of these verses are, are quite easy for those of us that are hardworking and listen I'm one of you. I, I, for the first 20 years of my career, I got up every morning and drove to this train station in the dark and got on the train and took it to Newark or Manhattan. We are very hardworking, and because of that, often very successful people here in Mendham and Chester, New Jersey. And there are a lot of verses in the Proverbs that people like you and I champion. In fact, if you're raising kids, if your 19-year-old senses more of a call to duty the video game than a call to duty the job, you might want to post some of these warnings around your house. Proverbs 10.4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. It's true, right? In fact, you see this over and over again in Proverbs, that wealth is a blessing, the product of hard work. Next, next verse, in fact, Proverbs 10.5. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. One of my favorites, Steve Fisher, uh, our old youth pastor, he used, to, he used to speak this one all the time. He said his mom made them memorize it when they were kids, which is probably a pretty good proverb for you parents to give to your kids. Uh, here's how it goes, Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. We have something to learn from the ant. Did you know that? Why? Because it has no commander, no overseer or ruler, and yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your rest? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Lots and lots of warnings about being lazy. And, th and then lots of Proverbs on, on how it is a blessing, how it is a good thing to have money and, and, and to be prosperous. The Proverbs over and over actually talk about wealth creation in positive terms. Something sometimes as Christians we, we struggle with. Nowhere may be more clear than, he than here. How about Proverbs 10? It, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The ancient wisdom regarding modern problems is this. 
work hard, get good things. Hard work is good. Laziness is bad. Hard work is good. Why? Because it leads to prosperity and, and riches, which are good. Again, a disconnect if you're a church person because we tend to think, well, wait a minute, John. Doesn't the Bible teach that, that money is the root of all evil? No, it actually doesn't. That is a famously misquoted verse out of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul was teaching Timothy that it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. You see, for the writer of Proverbs, hard work is important. Why? Because the reason that God does not want people laying around in their basements is because prosperity is important to God. Why? Because Proverbs is rooted in the context and the story of God's people in the Old Testament. The teachings there. In the creation story of Genesis, for example, God creates the material world to be good and to be enjoyed. And, and his creatures are given charge of it, to take care of it, to be responsible for the world. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, then, prosperity is good. Why? Because it has a purpose. Listen, this is, this is important. The more money you have, the more prosperous you are, the more of the world you can have. Not merely for your enjoyment, but the more of the world you can have to take care of. The more of the, the, more of the, world, uh, more of the world you are responsible for. The more of the world you have dominion over. You see it in the scriptures time and time again. After the fall, when God comes and reestablishes his covenant with people, when he, when he chooses Abraham, right, he's going to reestablish his, his community um, here on earth. He, he's going to bring a people to himself. Here's what he says to Abraham. He goes, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Abraham, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to have a lot, and it has a purpose. Because you are going to go bless people. In fact, in the New Testament, what you see over and over again is that how we use our prosperity and blessing in this life impacts the blessing we will experience in the next life, in the kingdom that will come. Why? Because if we can be trusted with a little here to bless other people, then God says, when you get to the kingdom to come, I will give you dominion over lots of things so you can bless even more people. Yet, here's where the book of wisdom comes in. The ancient wisdom warns continually that prosperity and riches also have a power to do not just good, but evil. You see, money, money's neutral, right? People aren't. Money, prosperity, Proverbs warns again and again, has this power to bless and to curse, to destroy, in a sense, our hearts and our souls, to, to twist our minds, to blind our eyes, to destroy our integrity in some way, to the detriment and responsibility that we have for others. Uh, check this out, a fascinating proverb here. One person gives freely and yet gains even more, right? Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes other will, others will be refreshed. Here comes a really interesting warning. This is, this is pretty interesting. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who's willing to sell. What's going on here is that 
In the time of food scarcity, common thing in the ancient world and in a modern world, right now I was just in the homes of people where food is very scarce, right? In times like this, Proverbs warns that there are men and women, there will be some who, who have been prosperous and they have lots of grain and they could sell it and they could make a very fair profit, but instead they see the opportunity to benefit themselves on the backs of others. So instead of selling the grain, they hoard it. And in the face of famine, they drive the price up so they can make an even greater profit. This is, you know, the guy who hears there's a, a blizzard coming, goes to the Home Depot, buys all of the snowblowers and sells them to you at twice the cost the next day, right? Let's be honest, it's a, it's a good business practice, right? Like, that's just smart. But the scriptures say it's not wise. The scriptures say it leads to being cursed. It's, it's hard work and prosperity pursued for the blessing of me in some sense and not for thee. The power of prosperity to bless and curse is why, and this is, a, this is, a, this is my favorite proverb, I think, there was a man named Agar who, who prayed what might be my favorite proverb. Here's what he said. He goes, keep falsehood and lies far from me. We have a great capacity to lie to ourselves regarding our personal financial conditions, right? That's why in this country, the greatest nation to have ever, the richest nation to ever exist, we often believe we don't have enough. We don't see our blessing. We don't understand how blessed we are. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Why? Because I tend not to see the truth, he, he's thinking. So give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? That's an Old Testament statement. That's what Pharaoh said, dismissing God to Moses. Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and, and so dishonor the name of my God. It's an amazing prayer. My team and I were in the home of a woman that sat in squalor. Her roof was tin. Her walls were <laughs> something slightly more substantial. She, she had a one-room shanty, and she lived there with several people, and she was an older woman. And we asked her, um, tell me about your situation. Like, I wanted, we wanted to hear how hard it was. And she said, you know what she said? She said, I'm fine. I'm content. You know, and when you're us, you're like, come on, really, tell us the truth. She's like, no, I'm fine. God's given me everything I need. I'm, I'm super. Th I, I, I asked her, Reed was there. I said, you, I think you, yeah, Reed was with her. And I said to her, like, tell me about God. And she's like, oh, he's so good. He, he just takes care of me, meets every one of my needs. Really? And she said, yeah, really. See, falsehood's been kept away from her, Right? What a prayer, right? It's a tough prayer for those of us who pray because really you're praying, God, don't give me poverty, but don't give me riches. Have you ever prayed that honestly, like, God, please don't make me rich? I know we pray for our daily bread, but does anybody go, but let's just cap it at that. <laughs> and if that bothers you, if you think to yourself, that would be hard for me to pray because, look, can I just be honest? I don't want to pray with that. But if that's hard for you to pray, and it is hard for me to pray, what it says is we may have a twisted relationship with prosperity. We may have understood what, what blessing is for. As I prepared for the trip to Guatemala, I had that Tony Campolo sermon in my mind, how, how it is that God's people could get so confused. Like, how did this happen? 
when it comes to prosperity and, and poverty. And I think part of the problem is that we have a pr profound misunderstanding of what it is that God wants from his people. We've missed in so many, many ways who he is and the main message. And, and it's resulted in us making a lot of mistakes. It leads us to leading lives of, of wrong or misdirected or misguided purpose. This is why, for example, that opening statement of his in that sermon, right? We get our, 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 our priorities screwed up. This is why I, we can't get past the poop emoji. But we sleep well even though 30,000 people died last night. And we, I can't believe he said that in church. I can't believe it. This misunderstanding of who God is isn't new. It's an ancient problem too. And then, like now, it's often this misunderstanding of God and religion that is the culprit. The Old Testament prophet Micah, he warns of it. Uh, listen to this. If you're, if you're a, a, a follower of God, I want you to, to listen to this message from God to his people. Micah writes it down. Here's what it says. Listen to what the Lord says, for the Lord is a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, quote, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And God then goes on to remind them of their past and all he's done for them. He would say the same to, to you. He would remind you of all he's done for you. The time you were born, where you were born, all that he's done, all, the, all that you have. And then God reminds his people of the trap of religion and of misunderstanding him. Quote, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with, him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? W will the Lord be pleased with me if I bring a thousand rams and with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is why there are child sacrifice temples all over the ancient world. This was the mindset of, of people, everybody trying to find God. This is what he wants of me. This is what he wants of me. More sacrifice. He wants something even closer to me. And eventually he's going to want my firstborn child. The people think, like we do, this is what God wants. If I want his blessing, if I've gotten his blessing, here's what I need to do. I need to sacrifice there is a tremendous danger in misunderstanding who God is for your life and the lives of all of those around us. This is not who he is, and this is not what he wants. God continues, what does the Lord require of you? He's shown you, O mortal, what's good. In other words, what God's requiring of us, of us isn't anything more than he's already shown to us. We're merely just to replicate it to others, the blessing that we've received. And what are those things that he has shown us that are good? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. The team and I worked on this this week a little bit. To walk humbly with God means nothing more than just to know him intimately and to be attentive to his desires and passions. Not to walk proudly, as the, the proverb warns against, who is the Lord? No, but to be, to be attuned to God and to align our hearts with his, our desires with his, to understand that he is God and we are not. And when we do that, what, what, would, God, what would God show us? Well, he would show us that, that to, do, to, to walk humbly with God means that you do justice and you love mercy. Do justice, which seems like make sure people get what they deserve, and do mercy, which seems to say, no, it, it, give them what they don't deserve. They actually seem contrasting, right? Do justice, love mercy, which is it? Super interesting point here. The word for mercy is the Hebrew word kesed, 
It's God's, the way God has treated us, unconditional grace and compassion. The word for justice is this word in Hebrew, mishpat. So in Micah 6.8, what God is saying is, Mishpat, it puts the emphasis on the action. Kased puts it on the attitude or the motive behind the action. To walk with God, then, what do you do? You do justice out of merciful love. Now, this justice concept, okay, justice, word Mishpat, it comes up over 200 times in the Old Testament. The most basic meaning is to treat people fairly equitably, rooted in the story of creation. Everybody is made in the image of God. Example, right? Leviticus, the book of law in the Old Testament. You're to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Which I know in a nation where immigration is a hot topic can be a controversial truth. But this is who God is. And he roots it in that. I'm the Lord your God. And again, here Mishpat is speaking of justice in the way you and I understand it, right? That uh, everybody should face the same retributive justice, the same punishment, regardless of race or creed or social status. But that's not only what justice means in the scriptures. What it means more often than not is to give people their rights, what they are justly due as human beings who carry around the imago Dei, the image of God. Ancient wisdom from Proverbs. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Biblical justice involves punishment, but it's often related to protection or care. It is restorative, not just punitive. That's why if you look in the Old Testament, every place the word mishpat comes up, justice is used, every time justice is used in the Old Testament, several classes of people always show up. Over and over again, justice describes taking up the care and the cause of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, please hear that, and the poor. Those that have been called by many over the centuries the quartet of the vulnerable. Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true mishpat, justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. The justice of any society, uh, the, way, the way God val- uh, judges societies, it's, it's based on how we treat these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the member of this quartet is, called, is not called excuse me, merely a lack of charity, but it is a violation of justice. It is a, representa- uh, it's a representation of people, um, it, is rep- excuse me, it is representative of people who don't act justly, that don't know God. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That's what it means to do justice, not just to hand out punishment. So so what does God want for us to do justice? What is justice? It's to give people what they're due, especially the vulnerable. And why? Well, in one of our meetings this week, I asked someone on our team to introduce um, himself to me. If I said to you, who are you? If somebody comes up to me, I go to a party at my neighbor's house, tell me who you are. I'm John Eisman. I don't just leave it at that, right? John Eisman, who are you? I usually don't like to start with pastor because that ends the conversation. So, uh, you know, I, I will start with, oh, I, you know, I had a, a 20-year career in finance, and, and now I, I, believe it or not, I work for a church. And uh, I go into that, and I talk about my children and all of the rest. I do what I think you do. That's how I introduce myself. 
That's who I am. That's what I would want you to know, right? Do you know how God introduces himself? Over and over and over and over again. God, he doesn't walk around and go, hey, do you know who I am? I am the ultimate power in all of the universe, and I will crush you right now. That's what we think, right? I mean, let's be honest. That's what I would do. Do you know who I am? All through the scriptures, what do you constantly see when God wants his people to know who he is? When he's trying to introduce himself. Psalm 146, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. We'll talk about that in a minute, what it means to be righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Do you know who that is? That's God. Have you met him? Again. From Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is, a, is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome. Okay, that's what I would have thought. Who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you. Boy, we should write that uncomfortable verse down. Giving them food and clothing. You have to understand how shocking this was in the first century and before. Where God always was seen as being with, with the rich. You know, with, with the guy at the house on the hill. The, the strong, the, the, the winners, the popular. That's where God was. Not with, these people are cursed. God's not with these people. But that's not the way it was. That's not who this God is. And don't you see what God's people were supposed to do? They were supposed to be this nation that would reveal God's glory and character to the world by being like their dad. This is why God says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the, the needy honors God. Modern problem, ancient answer. In the teaser this week, I, I talked to you about something my father would say to me that I, I swear I'd never say to my kids. You know, when your kid is crying and he's driving you crazy and you look down and you know, you want to kind of give them a little, you know. And uh, you think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm going to hold back on my discipline. And let me just tell you this. You keep it up, I'm going to give you something to cry about. And I swore I would never say that to my children. And then I had children. <laughs> but here's the truth. Our Heavenly Father really has given us something to cry about. Something he expected us to weep and mourn over. Something that he thought would break our hearts. Something he assumed would be at the forefront of who his people were and what we stood for. But we have let ourselves get so distracted and get defined by so many lesser issues and purposes. We, you know, I'd love to take us on a class trip down to the green of Morristown right now and walk up to people on the street and say, hey, could you tell me what Christians stand for? what we're really for and what we're really against. How long do you think it would be until the quartet of the vulnerable came up? Oh, Christians, they just love the broken people. They give all, all that they are and everything they have to eradicate injustice in the world. That's who Christians are. We used to be known that way. 
but we've allowed ourselves to be misdefined. And I think part of the reason, part of the reason is not because we're bad people. It's, it's because we've gotten consumed in a desire for, for righteousness. And righteousness is a good thing. Righteous living, right? We want to live that way. And we want, we demand oftentimes that the culture and the society around us live that way too. When we see the, the word righteous in the Bible, what we tend to think about is in terms of our private morality, right? Uh, sexual chastity, chastity and diligence in prayer and Bible study. These are good things. But you need to understand that in the Bible, there, there is a, another word for justice, and it's often translated being righteous. It, the word is sedekah. It's an ethical standard, and it referred to a right relationship. Being righteous meant that you were in right relationship with God and other people. One scholar defined it this way, quote, it is being right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. That means then that biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it's about relationships. In the Bible, sedekah, righteousness, refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all of their relationships in their family and in society with fairness and generosity and equity. And so when you understand that, it's not surprising then that sedekah and mishpat, justice and righteousness, always seem to come together in the scriptures. They're always side by side, justice and righteousness. Job, another book of wisdom in the Bible, illustrates it very clearly. Here's Job talking about himself in regards to justice and righteousness. He said, I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless, you see, it's always the same quartet, the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness, there it is, as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. I broke the fangs of the wicked, and I snatched the victims from their teeth. That, my friend, in the scriptures, is what it looks like to live righteously. This is how we strive to live. This is what Job was known for. This is what God's people used to be known for. The question is for us, is this the kind of righteousness that you strive for? We strive for. Is this the kind of righteousness we're known for? Is this the kind of righteousness that we demand others have? It doesn't seem to be. There are lots of things that we should be crying over. There are lots of things that as Christian, look, I'm, a, I'm a, a parent and a grandparent. There are lots of things we should be worried about in our culture and complaining about. But I can't help but wonder, with devastating consequences, both for the church and our witness, and the poor and the widows and the orphans, I can't help but wonder if we waste way too much time crying about the wrong things. I can't help but wonder if we've gotten our priorities just slightly askew. This teaching on justice and righteousness, not just an Old Testament thing. You need to see that Jesus' entire ministry is soaked in this. It's almost assumed. Watch out for teachers of the law, Jesus said. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeting and greeting respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They look religious. They devour widows' houses. 
and for show they make lengthy prayers, these men will be punished most severely. Over and over again, Jesus' teachings are framed related to justice and righteousness with these words. But the Pharisees, he said, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. The Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside of the cup make the inside also? But now as for what's inside of you, okay, here comes, we tend to think, okay, he's really going to let him have it about righteousness. And all of the sin that he's committed, all of the ways he's screwed up morally, and, and he does. Here's how he laid it out. Be generous to the poor, and then everything would be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, mint rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. And then most famously and most terrifyingly, I'm not sure why you and I don't lose more sleep over this. And I think I know why. I think it's because we know we're saved by grace, not by works. But if we're in a relationship with God, we would begin to replicate in our hearts and our minds. We would, the process of sanctification would make us look more like our dad, which is what Jesus is talking about here. It's a very famous story. You know it as the story of the sheep and the goats. Jesus concludes this way. He goes, then the king will say to those on his right, come, come. You who are blessed by my Father, and take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Notice, it's always the same people. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, there's the word, because of what they had done. What is righteousness? Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and, and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? They weren't doing it to try to achieve anything. When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, a, a foreigner, or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he'll turn and he'll say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are cursed, there's that word again. And why? The exact same words. Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I, I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I, I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison and you didn't look after me. They also answer him. And can I, can I, this is so interesting. I never realized this until this week. Have you ever noted, I'm sure you've heard, many of, many of you have heard this story. Both the righteous and the cursed the cursed, are both surprised. They're both, they're like, wait, what? They're caught off guard. They didn't see it coming. They both express complete surprise. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And, and when did we just ignore you and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Remember that little boy I started the story with? Showed you the picture of that was at our house? He, he was too young to speak, so I couldn't go up and ask him, you know, a, a common thing. We, we, we said almost everybody you meet on the street, Como se llama? What's your name? 
but I know who he is. Don't you? Since I opened with a Campolister, I'll close with one for you too. Another one that sticks with me whenever I get on the plane. The organization that he founded, it worked with desperately poor people in Haiti, and he tells the story of visiting a village on the border of Haiti. He was waiting at the edge of a grass landing strip, like, uh, like the airport that, that I left out of yesterday. And he was waiting for his Piper Cub plane to come and fly him back to the capital city. A woman came up to him. She was carrying a baby boy, obviously dying of starvation. And the mother begged him, don't let my baby die. Please don't let him die. Take him back to your country. Please, mister, take my baby. And Tony turned away, knowing that if he took one, he'd have hundreds of babies to take. But she kept coming after him and grabbing onto him, holding onto his clothes. The small airplane arrived, it taxied up and he kind of broke away and ran towards the plane, but the woman followed after him, screaming hysterically, don't let my baby die, mister. Please don't let my baby die, mister. Please take my baby. Please take my baby. As he hopped in, they closed the plexiglass door, the plane taxied. The woman began running beside the plane, banging on the fuselage. As it took off and circled, he could see her standing alone on the field holding her baby. It was only about halfway back to the capital city. As he sat stunned, he realized who the baby was. It was Jesus. This world has a modern problem with poverty and injustice. And I don't know why we think the answer is going to come from governments or NGOs. It will come ultimately if it comes from God's people who get their priorities straight. I looked this up. Christians, this is not a government statistic. Christians, people who say they follow Jesus, Christians account for the overwhelming majority of wealth held worldwide. Right out of, right out of Proverbs, I've, right out of Proverbs, work hard, I'll bless you, he has. The total wealth held by Christians, last measured, accounted for 55% of the worldwide total of wealth. We have more than half of it. Last week, somebody on our trip said that they're tempted when they see God, they're going to ask him, why didn't he do anything to help these people? I think God's answer is going to be, I did. I gave my people prosperity and blessing beyond measure, and I instructed them what to do with it. They just decided to cry about other things. It's a modern problem. You're the answer. So here's your homework. I'll leave you with what I left the group with on Friday night before I got on the plane. The great 18th century hymn writer, ex-slave trader, John Newton, wrote Amazing Grace. He marveled at the far-reaching implications of what he called Jesus' most ignored words. To quote Newton, he said, one would almost think that they weren't considered part of God's word, nor has any part of Jesus' teaching been more neglect neglected by his own people. He said, I don't think it's unlawful to entertain our friends, but if these words don't teach us that it is in some respect our duty to give preference to the poor, I'm at a loss to understand them. What were those words? Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbor, because if you do, they might inv invite you back and you'll be repaid. But 
when my people give a banquet, invite, are you ready? Guess who you should invite? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. Can I ask you to just reflect on that verse a little bit this week? Does anybody do this? Nobody loves their family more than me. I'm the biggest family guy. My friends sometimes get ticked because I spend too much time with my family. I'm big on family. And the Lord is saying, but John, there's, there's another party to hold. This has implications for who you draw close to, where you spend your time, how you spend your money, what breaks your heart at night, what you scream about on cable news. I'm going to close. There was a woman on our trip, Tracy, this week. She said, uh, she's new to our church. I said, what are you doing here? She said, uh, my first Sunday was Guatemala Sunday last year. She said, I walked in, and uh, you guys were talking about what you did. And I leaned over to my husband, and I said, I'm going to do that next year. And there was Tracy uh, on the trip with us this year. And so uh, as the band comes up, we shot a quick little video. I want to show you a little bit of what happened last week, and I want to issue all a grand invitation.